0: you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to join me in John chapter 18. I am glad that you are here for this 11 o'clock service. Perhaps we're unfamiliar with the reality of Scripture concerning our daily walk, our spiritual life. However you want to term it, this journey that we are on as we endeavor to honor God and resemble Jesus Christ. It is not a cakewalk. It is not an easy path. The scripture intentionally uses words like fight. We are told to fight the good fight of faith. We are mandated to earnestly contend for the faith. We are told to realize that this life we are living is a race and we must strive. We must press. All of these words indicate Activity. Our Christian walk is not a passive one. It is an active one. And anytime we are active, we are prone to fatigue. Activity requires an output of energy and of effort. And when we put out energy and we put out effort over time, we grow weary. The Bible understands that. And so the Bible teaches us that we should not grow weary in well-doing, and if we can continue to press on, we'll reap if we faint not. But also taking into account our humanity, we are exhorted by Scripture that when we do tire, and we do tire, that when we grow weary and we are fatigued in this life of honoring God and pursuing Christ-likeness, we must look to the author and the finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ, and we must derive strength from his example as he endured the cross in obedience to the will of his Father. And this morning I want to go on a circuitous route and I want to watch Jesus Christ be completely mistreated. I want to watch Jesus Christ deal with injustice, illegality, face-to-face with the corruption, the vileness, The wickedness and the sin that he came to this earth to die for. And I want to jump right into the middle of the trials of Jesus Christ. And I'll invite you here in John chapter 18 to look with me at verse 28. And if you don't have your Bible, those verses will be available here on the screen. Now, we're jumping into the middle. And I want you to listen as John gives us his account beginning in verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early. And they themselves, that is the Sanhedrin, that's the high priest, the chief council, went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled. But that so that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spake, signifying what death he should die. We just dove into the middle of a story, but we have met some of the main characters of our story. We have seen the tone and sensed the spirit of this night of the trial of Jesus Christ. We have witnessed the Sanhedrin, and though you have not yet seen it, they are upholding a religious facade. We have been introduced to Pilate, the one who will ultimately authorize the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We have sensed the corruption that is all around this story, and what the trials of Jesus Christ help us to understand is that the men who were entrusted with justice, the men who were entrusted with fairness, instead perverted the law and closed their eyes to the truth. Far from being impartial judges in this story, they had already decided the verdict in their heart. We're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ mocked, to use a Bible word, buffeted. We're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ beaten, and yet what will be revealed to us is that He stood in obedience to the will of His Father. And that is of utmost importance for us. That is what we derive our encouragement from, the example of Jesus Christ standing in obedience to the will of His Father. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah painted a picture, as the Holy Spirit inspired him, of the Messiah that was to come. He was writing of Jesus Christ. Here is what he told us to look for in Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53.3 he said this. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Those are strong words. Those words indicate a battle for the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll come back four verses later and Isaiah will write this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He's writing of Jesus Christ. In effect, he is portraying in prophecy these very trials. He's not saying that Jesus did not say anything, but rather, Jesus did not really vindicate himself in the midst of all of these illegalities and injustices that would go on during his trials. Instead, he was literally unstoppable in his desire to adhere to the will of his Father. He was literally unstoppable in his desire to become your substitute and mine, even if it meant, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers at Philippi, if he had to be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, which was the will of his Father, Jesus Christ took a stand for obedience. He already knew when he was born. He already knew as he aged what the verdict of this trial would be. But do not be mistaken. The outcome, the verdict of this trial was not ultimately settled by the Sanhedrin nor by any Roman politics. It was settled by the sovereign plan of Heavenly Father God. And the verdict would be death for Jesus so that we might have new life. He stood in obedience. It's tragic, it's vile, it's corrupt, it's wicked to watch what goes on this night. But I want to share it with you so that we can see how Jesus Christ stood, what he endured, and what he stood up against. Perhaps you are familiar with the fact that Jesus Christ was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, in a very vivid portrayal, is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he was betrayed. He has just exited the upper room where he has shared important and vital thoughts with the disciples. The Bible tells us that he is under the great burden of sin that will be on his body and the crucifixion before him and he is in agony, sweating as it were great drops of blood, crying out to God in heaven and he prays, Heavenly Father, if it be thy will. Let this cup, this bitter cup of bearing the sins of the whole world and this bitter cup of the cross pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Obedience to the will of the Father. You know the story as Judas betrays the Lord Jesus Christ down in the garden surrounded by Roman troops armed to the hilt as though they were coming against a violent criminal and they were coming against anything but a violent criminal. In that moment, Jesus looks at Judas and he calls him friend, offering him yet mercy and forgiveness in that moment. Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He is turned over to that Roman guard who will bind him. They will walk Jesus from the garden of Gethsemane, geographically speaking, right through the sheep gate. That's of prophetic importance. Because Jesus is the last lamb who will ever be needed for the atonement of sin, and he passes through fulfilling all the depiction of the Old Testament sacrificial system. As Jesus is brought into the city of Jerusalem, they take Jesus, and the Bible tells us this, and we'll pick up this story in John chapter 18, back in verse 12. Here's what the Bible says. Then the band, and the captain, and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him, and led him away to Annas first. For he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Jesus Christ is now taken into the presence of Annas the high priest. He is bound. What we do understand from the Bible is that the Roman soldiers who were there at the arrest of Jesus are now dismissed. Their work is done. It's completed. They're not mentioned again, Annas wouldn't want them around, none of the council, none of the Jews that were there would want them around, they want Pilate to only know what they want him to know and to only know what they tell him. Jesus is now bound and he is standing before Annas and I wish that it was possible for me to historically portray just how corrupt this man Annas was. Annas was a powerful political and religious figure in the city of Jerusalem. Annas, you may recall from Bible history, was in charge of the temple system. Annas was lining his pockets, as it were, with blood money. Because when Jesus Christ went into the temple courtyard and he saw the money changers there and he saw the materialism there and he saw them putting unfair interest rates on the poor there, there was an awareness that Annas was lining his pockets and becoming an exceedingly wealthy man by what was going on at the temple. In fact, historians tell us they call all of that wickedness down at the temple the Bazaar of Annas. So when Jesus Christ goes into the temple courtyard and he cleanses it and he turns it over, he is calling out in a very public way the corruption of Annas. He is turning this system upside down. And now Jesus, who Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and the chief priests have been desperate to get their hands on, is standing before them and he's bound. They hate Jesus. I don't think we can possibly sense the rage and the envy that is in that room. We have read in the gospel accounts that they have made up their minds to seek an occasion to execute Jesus Christ. Just days before this, he was entering into the city of Jerusalem and hundreds of thousands of people were praising him and crying out Hosanna as he entered in. And they, the Sanhedrin, stepped back for fear that the whole world had gone after him. But they are desperate to silence Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus now, in the middle of the night, stands bound in the presence of Annas. And John 18 verse 19 says this, The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. I want to clean something up just for a second because five verses later, John is going to come back and he's going to say this in verse 24. Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. How can there be two high priests? Annas was a retired high priest, but he was still the man in power. I want you to see him as he figuratively was a mob boss. Annas was a powerful man lining his pockets with blood money from the religious system. Annas was the decider. Annas was the man in charge. Caiaphas is his son-in-law. Rome desired to have a high priest that was put in place because Rome wanted a puppet. Annas was powerful enough to keep it within the family, and so Caiaphas is the high priest according to Rome. He's Rome's puppet, and he's his father-in-law, Annas's puppet, but Annas is the big dog. Annas is the mob boss. By the time we get down, as I read a moment ago in verse 19, Jesus is asked of his disciples. He is asked about his doctrine. And in verse 20, Jesus changes the tone of this setting because the Bible says Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Jesus is saying in this moment, I did everything in the open. I went where the Jews always are. I went into the synagogue. I went into the temple. I hid nothing. You know about my doctrine and you know about my disciples. He is telling in the midst of the eye of this storm, Annas, that this trial is illegally being carried out. This is an injustice. As soon as Jesus calls into question the tactics of the high priest, we come to a moment in Scripture where something literally outrageous happens. In verse 22, we read this, And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus bound. Jesus defenseless. Jesus, helpless in the sight of these humans, is struck by one of the officers of the high priest. And this officer of the high priest, being loyal to Annas, catches the embarrassment of this moment, reaches out and smacks Jesus across the face, and in effect says to the creator of the universe, how are you so audacious to speak to the high priest like this? Jesus responds back in verse 23, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why smitest thou me? Why did you hit me? I have not said anything evil. Annas, realizing that he has to get Rome involved in this, will now take Jesus and send him to his son-in-law Caiaphas, the standing high priest. Jesus, bound, now carried by this group of religious leaders through the night. Watch him as he walks through these alleyways of Jerusalem to go and stand before Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Matthew is going to give us a little insight that John does not give us into this moment in time. But we have to grasp something about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the 70 deciders of all legal matters for the Jews. Caiaphas and Annas and all of these men are unbelievably corrupted by this point in time. They had a place in the temple courtyard where they were to meet, and this was one of the most strict legal organizations you could ever encounter. And yet on this night, they throw out all of the legalities. They prove their corruption. By taking Jesus in the night, which was illegal for the Sanhedrin to convene a trial at night. It was not allowed. In fact, I was struck as I studied this, that the axiom of the Sanhedrin was actually this. The Sanhedrin is to save, not to destroy life. Well, they'll chuck that principle in the garbage can on this night. In fact, it is said that at the beginning of every trial... The president, the seated chair of the Sanhedrin, was to solemnly admonish the witnesses concerning the preciousness of human life. Well, that's thrown in the trash on this night. It is fact that no criminal trial could be carried through the night. It is fact that the judges who were to condemn a criminal had to fast all day long. It is fact that if the Sanhedrin voted unanimously for a verdict of guilty, the accused was set free since the necessary element of mercy was lacking. None of this applies. Because clearly this is carried out in the night. They also had to have witnesses that would agree as to the crime of the one standing trial. And I want you to listen to how wildly illegal this is from Matthew's account. Matthew 26 and verse 59 says this, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness. They were looking for liars. They were looking to pay the dregs of society to come and lie about the Messiah to put him to death, but found none. Yea, Though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. They couldn't find two guys to line up. Verse 61 says, And at the very last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. But neither did those witnesses even agree together. This is a facade, this is a charade, this is an act, this is injustice, this is cruelty, this is illegal, this is unfair, and yet Jesus continues to endure it. As Matthew twenty six sixty three tells us, Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And it is only now that Jesus will speak. Caiaphas looks at Jesus and has the audacity to act like he is standing on principle. Has the audacity to act like he cares about the law. He looks at Jesus and he says, you need to stand here now and you need to declare unto me whether or not you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus will speak. And here's what Jesus says in verse 64 of Matthew 26, thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, what Jesus just did, and I know you're probably not familiar with this, was roll together three Old Testament prophecies in one. And since I can tell that you are desperate to learn about Old Testament prophecy in this moment, I'll tell you that. Three Old Testament prophecies all rolled into one. Jesus has just answered Caiaphas. Now here's here's what you and I need to understand. Though we don't realize those are three Old Testament prophecies rolled into one, these keepers of the word, these legal abiders, this Sanhedrin, they knew exactly what Jesus had just done. Jesus had just told them the truth and yet they view it as a lie. Jesus has just declared unto them that he is the fulfillment of the scripture and now they have a moment of decision before them. Do they accept what Jesus has just said about himself, which is true, or do they outright reject that he is the Messiah promised from God and they choose the latter? Now, you have to buy into this story. You have to infuse the humanity back into scripture. You have to grasp the emotion of the moment. We are dealing with some of the most violent, corrupt people on earth in Annas and Caiaphas. The Sanhedrin has ultimately been completely off, paid off. They are bankrolled by this disgusting religious system, this perversion of God's intention. Now, Jesus, who is the only begotten Son of God, the truth embodied, who has revealed the corruption of their system, is now bound in their presence. And when they ask him whether or not he is Christ, the Son of God, he responds with the truth, and then get this moment and sense how fake it is. In verse 65 of Matthew 26, the Bible says, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold now, ye have heard his blasphemy. He rends his clothes. I mean he's heartbroken. Can you sense it? His defense of the honor of God is so clear that he must rend his clothes because this man has just declared that he is the Messiah, which by the way, he is. He rends his clothes and basically he says... We are having such a hard time finding two witnesses that will agree together. Do we even have need of any more witnesses? We've all heard this. Now pick up on the next verse. Because this is amazing what they do. The Bible says in verse 67 of Matthew 26. Then did they spit in his face. And buffet him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands. Saying prophesy unto us thou Christ. Who is he that smote thee? I believe this with all of my heart and I think you know this. You should be very thankful that I was not your Messiah. You should be very clear that I am not your Messiah. Because I am corrupted with the flesh. Let me just say this to you. This is creator God. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is all powerful, all knowing God in the flesh. And this is a group of corrupt rejectors of truth who are spitting in his face, smiting him in the face and mocking him. And if it were me or if it were you and I had the power to end their life as they reached out for me, I would have in a moment, I would have at least spread some leprosy around the room. There would have been a little bit of blindness going around. Something would have been happening. But pause for a moment and sense the injustice and get this. Listen, these are not men of honor who are upholding the law by smiting Jesus and spitting at him. These are men who are filled with satanic rage. These are evil and corrupt and vile men who are filled with indignation, born of sin, smacking him as hard as they can smack him, spitting directly in his eye, mocking him by asking him to prophesy. And all Jesus had to do was think a thought and the world ends. And he took it. Because he understood it was the will of his father. And if he ends this moment now, you and I would still be lost in our sins. And so he stood in obedience to the will of his father. As he stood before Annas, a corrupt man, and Jesus knew it. Had been betrayed by Judas, a corrupt man, and Jesus knew it. Before Caius, a beta male puppet for Rome and his father-in-law. And Jesus knew it. And now you must continue to bear up under this indignity. Having his clothes rent. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin head out. And the Bible tells us, because these are the verses we read early and jumped into the middle of. They head out early in the morning. And they take Jesus bound now to Pilate. Jesus is bleeding. He is covered in spittle. I have no doubt in my mind, like a boxer at the end of a long fight, he is swelling up and misshapen. They arrive at Pilate's Hall of Judgment early in the morning, and you have to grasp, Passover week was a celebratory week for the Jews, and it was a party week for all of the Gentiles, because everybody came to Jerusalem at once. In fact, in a moment we're going to meet Herod, who is in Jerusalem for the Passover week. You didn't want to go to Pilate's house and wake him up early. And yet they did. They take Jesus bound, covered in spittle, misshapen and bleeding to Pilate's house and Pilate comes out early in the morning and he says to them in effect, why are you here? What is this all about? They want Pilate so desperately to kill Jesus for them. All they want is for Pilate to rubber stamp this. So they say this, Pilate, we wouldn't be here if he weren't a malfactor. malefactor. We wouldn't be here if he weren't a criminal. We wouldn't even come to you. We wouldn't bother you if this man weren't an outright criminal. And so here we are. They don't give any explanation. They just say, hey, he's guilty. This guy's guilty. We wouldn't have brought him here if he wasn't guilty. Deal with this, Pilate. Pilate then says to them, deal with him according to your law. Where'd you get me up early? Why are you here on my doorstep? Deal with him according to your law. And then they tell another lie. Because they say, well, we have a problem because he's worthy of death. But we, according to our law, can't put people to death. Which anybody that's ever read the Old Testament knows that's a lie. You can kill people for everything in the Old Testament. Specifically blasphemy. Now what's incredible about this group is in Acts chapter 7, they're going to use that law to execute Stephen by stoning him. They're going to throw stones at Stephen. He will be the first martyr. They're going to kill him by employing that very law. But on this morning, they look at Pilate and they're like, nothing we can do. Hands are bound. Look at us, our clothes are rent. Would we be here this disheveled? We're heartbroken. We're up in arms. We're aghast at this criminal man. Standing there covered in spit. Bound, bleeding, and misshapen. Pilate is a little unnerved as they bring Jesus into his presence. I want you to notice something that is gag-worthy. Is that a word? Is gag-worthy a word? Tell me if, or if this is gag-worthy or not. Verse 28 of John 18 where we read, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And I want you to just notice this phrase. And it was early. And they themselves, that is the Sanhedrin, that's the chief priests, that's the scribes, that's the elders, that's the gathered body, would not go into the judgment hall where Pilate was, lest they should be defiled so that they could eat the Passover meal. Here, here's what we're watching. Here's what we're witnessing. They have literally taken the law and thrown it into the garbage. They have looked at the Messiah in the flesh and outright rejected the prophecy and the truth of who he was. They have unfairly and illegally spit on him and beat him. And yet in this moment in time, having just told a whopper of a lie, they have the audacity to say, well, we can't go into the hall of judgment or we'll be defiled Pilate's a Gentile. It's Passover week. If we God-fearing religious Jews go into his house, we'll defile ourselves. We won't be able to partake of the Passover meal. That indicates to us the facade and the vapidness of religion, doesn't it? We're so concerned about checking the boxes that we don't really care about who we are. Sin is so blinding, they will literally reject the Son of God, but be very concerned about being ceremoniously clean for the Passover meal. How gross! It's the same thing that afflicts us today. The reality is, as you look at me, you might be able to assess that I'm a really good Christian. You know how? Look at me. Look at me now. I'm serious. Look at me. I'm a good Christian. I have my Bible. I have a tie knot, I'm standing here telling you about Jesus, I have shoes and socks on. That's a start. I mean, I'm a good Christian, but the difference is is this, you don't have any idea what's in here, and you don't have any idea what's in here, and, and you don't want to, and I don't want to know what's on in there, but all they cared about was just look, don't listen. Just see, don't look beyond. Religion is blinding. It afflicts us today. That's what we're watching go on with this group of people as they take Jesus before Pilate. Pilate is now looking at Jesus standing in his presence. And Pilate is concerned about what is going on. They have now begun to accuse Jesus in Pilate's presence saying this, we found this fellow in Luke 23.2 perverting the nation. Well, that's not true. Continuing, Luke says, and they said he was forbidding to give tribute to Caesar when the exact words of Jesus were, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. They say he himself is a king and that concerns Pilate who is a puppet of Rome and if Pilate has insurrection here in Judea, things are going to go bad for him politically and now that Jesus has said he's a king, that scares Pilate. Pilate now has a question that he needs to get answered. Pilate walks back into the hall of judgment where Jesus, standing like a lamb, is bound, beaten, misshapen, bloodied, covered in spit. Standing there in front of Pilate, Pilate enters into the judgment hall and called Jesus and said unto him, art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus, clear on the story, answers and says, sayest thou this thing of thyself? or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? That is a legitimate question from Pilate. What did you do? Now, you're also going to grasp when Jesus is on the cross and they place the title above the cross from Pilate, king of the Jews in all those languages, that is Pilate thumbing his nose at them because he knows they are simply envious of Jesus and Pilate knows blood is on his hands because he okayed this execution illegally. He looks at Jesus and says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, is that what they said or are you coming up with this yourself? Am I a Jew? Your own people says, What did you do that has these people so riled up that they are willing to kill you? Jesus answered and said unto him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from thence. It is intriguing to me what happens. Somewhere in the hall of judgment, somebody somewhere mentions that Jesus is a Galilean. Pilate wants out of this situation really bad. And when he hears that Jesus is from Galilee, he finds a legal loophole. I want you to listen to it from Luke's account in Luke 23. When Pilate heard of Galilee, when Pilate heard Galilee mentioned, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at the time. Now this is the son of Herod the Great, the same Herod the Great who years earlier asked if the wise men knew where the king of the Jews was born. This is his son from Galilee in Jerusalem to party during Passover week. Pilate hears Jesus is a Galilean and he realizes, whoo, this is off me. Send him over there to Herod. So Jesus now, bound again, is drugged through the alleyways of Jerusalem, covered in spit, misshapen, and and blood, over to Herod from Pilate. And the chief priests are gone too. Now Jesus gets over to where Herod was and just sends the scene for a minute as we pick this up in Luke 23 and verse 8. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. Well, thank God, the injustice is over. no. For he was desirous to see him of a long season because he had heard many things of him and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. He's treating Jesus, and forgive me, like a freak sideshow. He comes to Herod and Herod thinks to himself, I've been wanting to meet this guy. I hear he does miracles. Bring him in here. Do a trick. He asks Jesus a lot of questions. Jesus does not answer any of his questions which does not sit well for a pompous, arrogant slob like Herod, who is as corrupt and vile as everybody else in this story. And so here is what Herod does. And pick up on this for just a minute. In verse 11 of Luke 23, we read this, And Herod, with his men of war, set him at naught, and mocked him, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day, this is disgusting. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. A couple days earlier, Herod and Pilate were enemies of each other. But they forged a new friendship over Jesus' illegal trials. What a great foundation for a friendship. When Herod doesn't get the show from Jesus that he wants, he and his men of war set Jesus at naught They ridicule him. They oppress him. They mock him. They bring out a faux gorgeous robe and wrap it on him and say, send him back to Pilate. I can't do anything with him. Now Jesus is drugged through the streets of Jerusalem again. This time being mocked by the masses, going through in a gorgeous robe, still beaten, still dealing with the illegality, still followed by those chief priests hurling insults at him. After his first inquiry, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. By the time we get to 19 and he's standing before him again, Pilate comes out and says to them again, I find no fault in him. What do you want me to do with this man? You take him and crucify him. I find no fault in him. And the Bible tells us Pilate knew it was of envy that they delivered him. They knew it. What will ultimately happen is Pilate will try to salve the growing mob by taking a crown of thorns and smashing it down onto the head of Jesus. Dragging him back out, arrayed in his gorgeous robe, now dripping with blood all over, bound, and Pilate will mock him by saying, Behold your king! And the mob will erupt and they will say, We have no king but Caesar! And Jesus, God in the flesh, Messiah, Savior of the world, will stand there and endure that indignity. There's a little hidden moment within Scripture that is often overlooked. Pilate knew the motives of the chief priest. He knew it was envy. He knew he literally had no legal right to execute Jesus on the cross. That's why he will come out and wash his hands in their presence. That wasn't even a Roman custom. That was a Jewish custom. And he's basically saying, that is not on me. This blood is not on my hands. It's on yours. And they say, put it on us and on our children. And it is. And it is. As Pilate is seated in the judgment hall, knowing the decision about Jesus is looming. He gets a note from his wife. Here's what the Bible says in Matthew 27, 19. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with this just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. This is spiritual warfare. Pilate's wife is sleeping And she is dreaming, and we don't know what's going on, but they are lucid, and they are vivid, and they are very real. And she says to her husband, don't mess with him. He is a just man. I have suffered many things in dreams because of him. I'm telling you, don't touch that just man. But legally, he should not. Politically, he has no choice. As the crowd erupts yelling, crucify him, he tries one last-ditch effort. He looks at them and he says, look guys, according to your custom, according to your custom, on this day we release one to you. Let's let it be this guy. Come together with me here. Let's let it be Jesus. And they say, no. Give us Barabbas instead. An insurrectionist. A murderer. Barabbas walks free, guilty and condemned, Jesus, sinless and innocent, remains bound. That's our story. Jesus will now be taken out and he will be attached to a stump and his hands will be bound. He will be stripped bare and he will be scourged. Within an inch of his human life, he will be whipped. He will be beaten. Jesus will take up the top of the cross and he will begin to walk down the way that is called the straight way. He is so beaten, he is so emaciated from the night that he has just spent, he continues to collapse under the weight of the cross and so they drag Simon the Cyrene out of the crowd to carry his cross for him. As he walks down, he is spit upon from all sides, he is shouted down, he is beaten, anyone that can reach him will throw something at him or smack at him. As he makes his way to Golgotha, he will be laid down on the ground, he will extend his arms and they will take metal spikes and drive them into his flesh and bones, into his wrists. And where every other worthy criminal would fight and reject and push against it, Jesus said, I lay down my life. It took a lot of soldiers to hold the other criminals down, not Jesus. As he laid there, when they shrieked in pain, the Bible tells us Jesus simply said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they would drive the nails deep, and he would continue to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then they would place him into the air, and drop that cross into the ground, and the body of Jesus Christ would heave. Covered in blood, misshapen, and, and, and you have to see this. Of his own will and testimony, Jesus said this, All I have to do is say, Heavenly Father, send the angels now, and they would come get him. And I want you to grasp, we don't have a full comprehension of the number of angels, but they could darken the sky. Because the angels that were there on the night that he was born, they were singing in a choir, indicated in the languages, it went from horizon to horizon. And they were in effect being held back in heaven. And Michael and Gabriel, those angels who heralded the gospel message, if they could have been released, they would have gone down against the will of God maybe, and said, this ends here and now. All he had to do was think a thought and walk off that cross and say, I am done with dirt bags like Chris Edwards. I am not going to hang here for someone like Annas and Caiaphas and this Rube Herod and this Pilate. I'm done with this. All he had to do was say, Father, send the angels and they come and it's over and the world is wiped out in a blink. If he can end it in fervent heat at the end, he could have done it then. And make no mistake about it, it was a miraculous time as the earth shook and graves opened and the dead walked around and the sun was darkened. All he had to do was say, I'm out. Because it was you that he was doing this for. And ask yourself this question and be honest, based on how you've lived your life. Are you worth that? Are you worthy of that? But he stayed. Because it was the will of his father. And he stayed. Because without him staying, we would still be lost in our trespasses and sins. But we have new life because he who was sinless laid down his. Can you fathom you being spit on one time and you're out like me? Be hit one time and know that you have the whole weight of the law to throw against this. Deal with that injustice and you quit. And I want to draw this to a conclusion by saying, what Jesus did was he stood in obedience to the will of his Father and ask you this question. What does it take to get you to quit? Because I began by saying this, we are to earnestly contend. We are to fight the good fight. We are to stand. We're in a race. This is spiritual warfare. We have an adversary who is the devil. And I'll say this to you, we're weary in it. We get fatigued. And so when that happens, we're to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who endured the cruelty of the cross, and yet we can't find time to serve. We can't find it within us time to develop a prayer life. We can't have a heart of gratitude. We'll look at the mandates of Scripture and act like, well, those are way too hard to fulfill. Who would live like that? And someday we'll stand in His presence and and according to the sovereign plan of God, He has maintained those scars and we'll see them in heaven and we'll look at them and all we will want to hear all we'll want to hear is, well done, you did good, my faithful servant. And instead, we are down here throwing pity parties, and we're whining about hardship, And we can't promote the gospel and we can't be tasked with service and we can't be expected to give and we can't be expected to serve and we can't be expected to esteem others better than ourselves and give up a seat or a parking place or a little bit of money or a little bit of time. We can't be bothered with that. After all, what did he ever do for me? It's a travesty the way we live our lives in light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ.